couple of things. The Blakeleys have moved. I'm a little bit envious of their new home. Just telling you up front. <laughs> they live on the river. Their backyard is, I keep wanting to call it, the, it's the Flint River, right? Not the Elk. I keep wanting to call it the Elk River. Out there in Newmarket in Ottyville. <laughs> but they're right on Winchester Road, and you're going to give everybody the address, I'm sure. They have a Friday night Bible study fellowship, and uh, they eat at 6 o'clock, and then they have a Bible study at 7. So come on out if you can make it. We do have our care bags, and that meets a need. You ever see somebody on the free freeway or interstate off-ramp that will work for food, and they really won't work for food, but you feel like you should give them something? We got the bags you can give them. They have a Bible in them. They have a bottle of water in them, a couple uh, other little uh, items that for personal hygiene, and uh, uh, if you feel inclined, throw a $5 bill in there or something. But we have something you can give people that are in need, and that's always helpful. This morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Uh, we're going through uh, the Bible in systematic order, and we're in 1 Samuel 10. Saul, in chapter 9, he's been anointed by Samuel on the road on the outskirts of a walled city and he's taken a break from hunting his father's donkeys uh, and he has a meal with Samuel Samuel the prophet and there's 30 other important people there dignitaries and it's interesting how many times we gather to have fellowship around a meal. Here at Calvary Chapel, we have a lot of meals together. Some have even dubbed us as Calorie Chapel. And that's not all untrue either. <laughs> but, but here in the South, uh, I love the hospitality of the South, born here, spent a lot of years out in California, but I enjoy fellowshipping together with you folks and we have potlucks and we have home fellowships and we have Sundays after church where a lot of us go out and eat and uh, come to our house and Lori will make sure you're fed usually so those are some of the things we enjoy do Saul is Samuel's guest of honor at this banquet of 30 plus people it's a two-day banquet. We usually don't have two-day banquets. The first miracle of Jesus, though, was at a wedding feast. And the wedding feast in the Jewish culture at that time were usually a week-long event. And what does Jesus do at this wedding feast? Right away he turns water into wine to make the banquet a more happy occasion. But Samuel... He wakes Saul up early in the morning, and his words are, Get up, Saul, that I may send you on your way. And this is when Samuel anoints Saul uh, as king. 
So let's pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terabith tree at Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, and you shall receive from their hands. After that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistines' garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the, to the city that you will meet a couple, uh, meet a group rather, of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments, tambourines, a flute, a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of God will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them, be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. The nations that surrounded Israel in this pagan society that Israel finds themselves in, they would use animal fat. Can you say lard, animal fat? And they would anoint their kings with animal fat. They would rub it into the scalp of the anointed king, thinking that by rubbing this animal fat into the king, they would take on the strength of the bull or the ox that this animal fat was taken from. God cleans up the anointing process for Israel. And aren't we glad? God says, anoint with olive oil and mix it with spices, put some smell-good ingredients in there. And the tree that the olive oil is taken from was symbolic of Israel's kings to be fruitful as a king. Be fruitful like a tree, produce fruit. Today, it's interesting that when we swear in an elected official, we have them put their left hand on the Bible, and raise their right hand and swear. Swearing in before God and using his holy scriptures as a witness of their taking the oath of office. And this symbolizes, hopefully, supposedly, I'm not so sure it does in our society, that you're going to be led by God's spirit, by his word, in your position as an elected official. So it has symbolism there. Samuel gives Saul further instructions. First he says, hey, the donkeys have been found, Saul, so don't worry about them. Go ahead and leave Rachel's tomb, travel down to the Terabith tree at Tabor. You will meet three men. These men They'll have three young goats, they'll have three loaves of bread, and one of them will carry a skin of wine. You're to receive 
the loaves and the wine, and a group of prophets will be coming down from the high place, and they will have musical instruments. And these prophets, they will be prophesying. Prophesy with them, Saul, and the Spirit of God will change you into another man, and the Spirit of God will give you another heart. And all these things, all these signs that Samuel tells about Saul, they happen. Do Saul as the Spirit leads you. And then he says, for God is with you. Prophecy in the broad sense of the term is to proclaim God's goodness and his word. So on Sunday mornings, or in different Bible studies that you go to, whoever teaches God's word in the basic sense is prophesying. Prophesying can also be giving testimony to a praise report, how God has answered your prayer, speaking forth the goodness of God. That can be prophecy. Prophecy about God hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. And some of us were conditioned to listen to prophecies when a person would stand up in a meeting and say something like, Thus saith the Lord. And then would come forth perhaps a prophetic word. <laughs> Not always, but sometimes. But as a rule, we think like Israel thought. Prophesying is telling of future events. Israel called their prophets seers. What, a, what an apropos name, a seer, one who looks into the future by the Spirit of God. Was Saul speaking or foretelling future happenings, King Saul? Perhaps. When you hear me prophesy, you can count on this. I am the great maybe. We are told that Saul prophesied. So Samuel has prophesied that Saul will prophesy. So let's read verses 8 through 16. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. And when the Spirit of God came upon him, he prophesied among them, speaking of Saul. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? So he said, To look for the donkeys. And when we saw that you, they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, 
what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. So Saul's keeping it on the low uh, QT there about him being anointed commander of God's uh, people. Saul is to go down to Gilgal, and he is to wait there for Samuel. Samuel will come and make sacrifices and peace offering, but Saul is to wait seven days. That can be an eternity. Have you ever been told to wait by God? That's one of the most difficult things we do is to wait for God's direction. Saul, he turns to leave Samuel, and God gives Saul another heart. God gives Saul a change of direction. He's now king. He now has different responsibilities and duties, and he also has a different attitude. And then notice in verse 9, and all those signs, all the instructions that Samuel gave to Saul, they came to pass. That's the markings of a prophet when all the things come to pass that they prophesy. God did not allow any of Samuel's words, as the scripture says, to fall to the ground. They came about. And that's a sure sign of a prophet, all their words coming to pass. In the Christian church as a whole, there was a movement a few years back in, I believe it was St. Louis, don't quote me on that, that they had what they call a school of prophets. And there was degrees of being a prophet. You were a master prophet if 80% of your prophecies came about. 80%. That's pretty good odds. God had a standard for prophets. 100% accurate or look out for the stones that are coming after you. The way I see things, I have never declared to any group of people anywhere in all my years of ministry, thus saith the Lord. Especially on my opinions. Now, I try to be bold in declaring God's word, but I have no desire for you people to gather rocks and come after me. I don't want to be a prophet speaking forth from my opinions. But we read in Scripture that the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? But these are the glory days of Saul. This is when he is small in his own eyes, and this is when he pleases God with his behavior. Saul is given a new heart. So how do we, how do you and I receive a new heart? A heart that is after God. Well, we simply call it being born again. And I like that. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'll just read you a verse. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passing away, all things becoming new. Now, when we become born again, we go through what we call a growth process, a maturing of us as Christians. Uh, we do not all mature at the same pace. I mature, still am maturing, at a very slow pace. But there is a growth process there. There will be a change in anyone who is born again, thus the term born again. And the greatest miracle that I think any of us here in the United States in particular see is the changed life of someone born again. You see a person who was bent on sinning. They enjoyed sinning, and they become born again, and all that passes away. They get a new set of friends. Their life is totally changed. That is maturing in Christ. That is a changed heart. You can argue with someone about moralities until you expire. But once Jesus comes into a life, those changes are no longer just superficial. Their heart changes. Jesus changes hearts one at a time. God changed the heart of King Saul. And Jesus is changing hearts all around us every day throughout the entire world. I recently read an, a statistic that actually shocked me. 80,000 people a day are coming to Christ throughout the world. 80,000 a day. Now that number, I have to think, may be inflated. It may include Christians rededicating their life to the Lord. But no wonder our Lord delays his return to rapture his church. 80,000 people a day come to know Christ. In Luke 5, and you may want to turn to this, we're going to be talking about Luke 5 here. Jesus has called Levi the tax collector to be a disciple. And it's not a popular choice because tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. The scribes and the Pharisees, they questioned Jesus. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, Jesus, why do John the Baptist's disciples fast often and make prayers? Likewise, the Pharisees, but your disciples eat and drink. The scribes and the Pharisees are condemning Jesus. But let me read you the passage, and that's in Luke 5, 33 through 39. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours, speaking to his disciples, eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a, 
piece of from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus answers the critics, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are finding fault with him. Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? Why don't you see your disciples why don't we see your disciples offering up prayers like John the Baptist disciples do or like we Pharisees do? Why aren't you religious like us, Jesus? Wow. <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees have set themselves up as the standard of religious piety. We're, we're religious. We're holy. Why aren't you, Jesus? And here is the great assumption by the scribes and Pharisees that is so wrong. We are righteous because of our behavior. So Jesus simply speaks a parable to them. When I, speaking of himself, their bridegroom their intimate leader am taken away from them, then they will fast. And Jesus is talking to Pharisees who fasted two days a week every week. And they took great pride in that. And they were known for making a show of their fasting with a sad and somber countenance and they would pray and they would, at the calls to prayer, they would try to find a way to demonstrate their holiness. And they would usually try to be in a crowded marketplace or something like this when the hour of prayer came. And the Pharisees would linger around a crowded spot, stop and lift up their hands in a conspicuous, busy place where they could be seen of men praying. Jesus at one time said to another Pharisee that he prayed within himself. Wow. Wow. Of all ways to pray, don't pray within yourself. <laughs> but let's hear what Jesus speaks in this parable. No one takes and sews a new piece of cloth from a new garment unto no one. No one. The new cloth will tear away and not even match the old cloth. This don't have anything to do with that, but have you noticed, I saw this on TV the other day, the new fad in jeans is dirty, muddy jeans. Permanently stained, and they're $400 a pair. Where do I get some? Yeah, you bet. But no one puts new wine 
no one in old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the old wineskins. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of wine, and it's a waste of, of the wineskins. And Jesus says, no one. In other words, this is common knowledge, and nobody does this. No one mixes new material into an old garment, and no one puts new wine into an old wineskin, for it'll burst. No one. But Jesus isn't trying to be practical about garments or cloth or wineskins, for that matter. Jesus is trying to cause the scribes and the Pharisees to consider. He wants them to think. He wants them to recognize. He wants them to ponder what's going on around them. Jesus is bringing in what we would call a new covenant to an old orthodox religion. A new movement is based upon mercy in grace, not the law, not the prophets, not sacrifice, but now mercy and grace. And then Jesus states a truth that all who read this parable should, should take note of. No one, and I notice Jesus uses her, no one, having drank old wine desires new wine. Because they feel the old wine is better. The old wine representing the way religion, the way the Jewish religion is being practiced in and around Jerusalem. Fasting, pretentious prayers, the old way are better to those that use them. John the Baptist. The Pharisees quote John the Baptist. It's not that they like John the Baptist, but they prefer John the Baptist over Jesus. They didn't listen to John the Baptist when John says, repent of your sins. They didn't want anything to do with that. But John was more acceptable. He was more in line with their way of thinking than Jesus is. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're against the new teachings of Jesus. They oppose mercy and grace. They oppose Jesus when he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. That didn't fit with their uh, thinking. And now Jesus is prying open the ways and the methods, the methods of behavior before God. He's saying, think about what you're doing. Change does not come easily to established religions. Men and women are steeped in tradition. Look at the Jewish faith. Look at Catholicism. They're steeped in tradition. They prefer the old ways, like many legalistic Christians prefer the old ways. The Pharisees, 
challenge Jesus because they prefer the old ways. It's the way they think. And they look at Jesus. Here's a man, a brilliant man. They'll give him that. But he surrounds himself with 12 ordinary disciples, 12 common men. These disciples of Jesus, they're not of the right pedigree. They didn't go to the right schools, the pharisaical schools. And yes, some of them were even hated tax collectors. And who in the world ever thought a fisherman would be considered brilliant? (laughs) You fish because you couldn't do anything else for a living. But this is who Jesus spent all night in prayer before he selected them as disciples. It wasn't happen chance that Jesus chose his disciples. He spent a night in prayer praying about who his disciples were to be. But look at the numbers today. If you want to just look at sheer numbers, Christianity is a mega religion. Outnumbering the entire Jewish population of the world. There's roughly 15 to 20 million Jews in the world. Christianity is in the billions. And that doesn't even count the Orthodox Jews, which are believing Jews. Jesus is the new wine of Christianity, is proof that mercy and grace is better. And aren't we glad? Much better than the law and sacrifices. God gave Saul a new heart by his spirit. He completely changed Saul. Even turning Saul into a prophet. And it became a proverb there in Israel. A a popular proverb. Saul, the son of Kish, is also among the prophets. So today... You and I, who are born again, have been given a new heart by our Lord Jesus. What a thing to be thankful for. I don't have to be like I was before. Thank you, Lord, for repentance. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. If you have not been born again, be born again. It's that simple. There will be people in a prayer area that would be happy to pray with you to receive Christ. But it's a great honor and privilege to be given a new heart by our Lord and God. But let's pray. Father God, thank you for having compassion on us so willing to change us, so willing to turn us around if we would simply repent and come before you. So, Lord, thank you for repentance. We get to change. We get to live a life that has meaning and purpose. We do not have to live in sin. 
and practice sin each and every day. We can live and have a higher call upon our life following you, Jesus. So guide and direct us by your spirit. Lead us, Lord, into good works, into fruit for your kingdom. Help us, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now.